The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is blogger, author, parent Marguerite Ellisoffen. She's author of My Picture Perfect Family: What Happens When One Twin Has Autism. Margaret and her husband Howard eagerly anticipated starting a family. After receiving medical help to conceive. Margaret joyfully found herself pregnant with twins. Born after only 33 weeks, Samantha's introduction to the world was much more challenging than her brother's. The differences between the twins continued to escalate after they left the hospital. They sought professional help and received the diagnosis they feared. Their daughter was on the autistic spectrum. My picture-perfect family is Ella Soffin's memoir of the courage it takes to raise and advocate for a child who is far more than the sum of her ever-shifting diagnosis. Welcome to the show, Marguerite. It's great having you on today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's obviously, I think it's important that you share your story. Apparently, the diagnosis of autism is increasing every day as we speak. Uh, I guess we have better tools to do that. So I think that's why your story is particularly important. But what happened? Why did you decide to write your story? And, and let's start from the beginning because um, you're, obviously your family wasn't picture perfect, um, although you do as, look as if it were when you see a picture of you and, and, and the twins and, and your husband. So let's start from the beginning. Um, why write the book? Well, I wanted to give hope to other families that were starting on the journey uh, because it can be overwhelming and lonely. And, in fact, um, since then and since I finished the book, I've decided to start um, a consulting business called uh, Ask an Autism Mom to help people sift through all of the many choices that are out there in terms of treatment in schools and camps and all kinds of therapies and professionals because although there are more choices, you still have to make them. And um, as I said, it was a difficult road. It was perhaps more difficult because of, you know, the lack of research, Internet, Autism Speaks, uh, support groups. It was lonely. It was overwhelming. And I guess the name of the book, Picture Perfect Family, as you said, things can look good and not necessarily be the way they look. And when you see children with uh, disabilities, sometimes it's visible, the disability, and then people are much more understanding. If you see a child with Down syndrome or you see a child with cerebral palsy in a wheelchair, uh, the reaction in the, amongst the public is completely different than when you have a kid on the spectrum who's having a meltdown over something that looks very minor, there's a tendency, or there used to be, a, a strong tendency to think the child was a spoiled brat or the mom was, you know, 
you know, the parents were bad parents spoiling their kids or, you know, all kinds of things which made, you know, made life even more upsetting, frankly, for the parents as well as for the child. Yeah, so expectations because, uh, are different. Know, a kid with autism often looks just like any other kid. Yeah, so that really, as a parent and the child as well, puts you in a really awkward position is what you're saying. I mean, the expectation is, yeah, this is a quote, and I'm going to use normal, which I don't usually do, but an average kid, so what, they're acting out, as you say, they're spoiled, they're obnoxious, they, you know, they shouldn't be behaving this way, when in, in fact, obviously, that's not the case, they child is struggling and the parents are too. Let's go back from the beginning though with your family because okay, twins born at 33 weeks um, often isn't that one of the issues um, I don't know what the statistics are that if you know, that's what a little on seven months uh, plus one week I guess early um, that they will have some kind of issues and autism may be one of them well, I think there's, you know, a lot of um, concern that uh, babies that are born prematurely have a much higher likelihood of having a disability. You know, there's less time for the nervous system to develop, less time for the brain cells to, I don't know, do whatever they do during yeah. those last few weeks in the womb. Uh, but uh, well, but there are plenty of single babies that are born on the spectrum, and there are plenty of premature babies that are multiple that do not have disabilities. It's just a question of, you know, the statistics. You know, there's lots of things, you know, that seem to be contributing factors to the risk for autism. One of them is prematurity. Another might be, you know, age of the parents or um, father. I mean, you know, age of the eggs of the mother. I mean, there's lots and lots of, you know, environmental issues I mean, I don't really know. I mean, they discounted the whole vaccine theory, but, you know, people are still, you know, researching, discussing, arguing um, over what, uh, what the ver- various contributing factors might be. But whatever they are, it happened to you. Whatever the reason, (laughs) it happened, and here are my kids, and this is, you know, uh, this is my family, so we're going to deal with this. So I I think I'm really interested in, I mean, here you are. I was not expecting to have a premature birth, even though you were having twins, and then the babies are born. And and then what happened? How did it, you know, there was a huge difference between your son in terms of development, uh, Matt, and your daughter, Samantha. So when did that? When were you kind of aware that there was maybe something different, that Samantha was behaving differently or wasn't connecting? I mean, in the hospital? I think think it's because, you know, at least when my children were born at the end of 1990, uh, the hospital where they were born, Lenox Hill, had started up a, just started a program to observe, you know, milestones in children with disabilities. And I think as a parent of a, child, a baby that's premature, you look for those milestones, you know, when do they turn their head, when do they crawl, when do they walk, when do they speak, in a way maybe that, you know, if you're just having one baby or the baby comes more or less when it's supposed to, you don't think about it. But when you have twins and when you have premature twins, you, 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 you're aware of the milestones among, because you've been told to be aware of them and you've been made aware of them. And then if you start to see one baby reaching the milestones, not only, you know, more or less on time or maybe even ahead of schedule when you adjust for prematurity, and then you see the other one lagging behind or, 
you know, not turning towards you when you hear, when, when, you, when I said Samantha, she didn't turn her head toward me, or, you know, rocking, or, or, or crying inconsolably. Um, those, are, those are red flags. Uh, and as I said, I was fortunate, I guess, I'll put the word fortunate in quotes, that I had a brother-in-law who was a pediatrician, and, you know, we brought him, we brought her to him, and, you know, my husband said, you know, there's something doesn't seem right with Samantha. And, you know, she didn't, she didn't respond in ways that seemed normal for babies, toddlers, whatever. And he said, you know, without blinking, she has pervasive developmental disorder. And they didn't use the word autism, and I didn't know pervasive developmental disorder was on the spectrum way back when. Uh, but I knew that it was pretty serious. I mean, you know, I still remember my mother saying to me, aren't you relieved that she's not, I'll use the word that nobody ever uses anymore, retarded. And I said, no, I'm not relieved that she may have pervasive all-across-the-board delays and that she might, you know, be autistic. Uh, that's, you know, and not make eye contact. That's not a relief to me. <laughs> you know, uh, time to seek some more opinions. How did you feel, like, I mean, your husband is an attorney and, and you know, well-educated. You're, uh, you know, uh, both of you very accomplished. Because these are some of the feelings, like the emotions you feel when, you, you know, you, you do expect to have the picture-perfect children um, or close to it. And then suddenly, oh, my God, my, you know, daughter is diagnosed uh, with this horrific diagnosis. Or well, what are the, well, you know, it's it, like being able... I, I, share some of those feelings that maybe you had of loss or grief or... Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Tremendous grief. Uh, profound disappointment, dis- at first disbelief, not wanting to believe that it was really so and hoping to find out otherwise. Um, then anger that you had this gloom and doom kind of diagnosis that you want to prove that your child isn't going to fit into whatever negative prognosis a particular doctor or expert might offer you. Um, And then you have the mixed blessing of, um, you know, you have one child that's neurotypical and bright and developing, and you're celebrating those accomplishments, and you're thrilled, and you're happy, but at at the same time, it's pointing to the fact that you have another child that's falling further and further behind. So that's sort of a, you're in a state of ambivalence some of the time as well. So each time, well, it's interesting because you have twins. I guess maybe, maybe if you hadn't had twins, you wouldn't have recognized her issue before. As, maybe as soon as you did, because you had her to compare to her brother, as you, you know, you mentioned earlier. That's absolutely right. I think a yeah. first-time parent who has a baby doesn't really know exactly, you know, unless they're one of those types that's reading every baby book, you know, out there in Barnes and Noble. Doesn't know, you know, okay. You know, maybe they know that your child walks around a year old or says a few words or maybe you're part of a baby group, but it doesn't hit you with the same kind of force, I don't think, as when you have, you know, two babies that are exactly the same age, that had exactly the same, you know, maternal environment, and one is developing one way and the other one is not. So, yes, um, I've been asked that question, you know, I've said it's a mixed blessing because, you do find out earlier or you notice that something's different about one. And although, you know, uh, they tell you to never compare, you're not supposed to compare siblings and babies, and it's impossible not to do it when you have premature twins or multiples because uh, you have, you know, 
the kids that are essentially born in the same environment with the similar genetic material, and they, you know, I ate, they, you know, I ate the same foods and lived the same life for, while I was carrying them. Yeah, yeah uh, they always say don't compare. I mean, I have three children, not twins, but, I mean, parents compare. I mean, that's just human nature, so that, that doesn't really, that's not good advice. It's, of course, <laughs> how you handle it. <laughs> um, who, I mean, because I, I, all of these, um, I'm trying to, the, the relationship between you and your husband, I mean, that has to, had to have been really challenged, um, the, just bet. between the two. Yeah. <laughs> you Can bet. you talk? Uh, yeah, yeah. challenging. I think, though, that um, what kept us together, or one of the things that kept us together um, through all of the hard times, was I think without ever even talking about it, we both put our kids first. I mean, there are, I suppose, couples and families where, you know, one member of the couple or the other is so upset or feels so neglected or feels so overwhelmed um, or doesn't feel they get enough attention from their spouse and that sort of um, causes, that's just, you know, my own observation. Uh, But we both, you know, we adored these children and we wanted the best for them and whatever that took, we were going to try to do. That said, um, we did try to um, carve out, you know, time for the two of us to be alone together. Uh, You know, I mean, I suppose you could say in some ways we were the, you know, pre-feminist family and that my husband went to work and I I raised the children. But, you know, let's face it, raising my two was not the same as just, you know, not that it's easy to raise any child, but, uh, you know, mine were particularly challenging. Uh, my, My son also had open heart surgery when he was three. Uh, So I had a lot going on, and, um, you know, it put a tremendous financial burden on my husband, and it put a tremendous emotional burden on me. I mean, in other words, it was unequally, one of us had more of one burden than the other, but we both recognized the value of what the other person was doing and realized that each each of us was doing the thing that we we were able to do best. And um, also we, I mean, and I would advise this of any family to, you know, and I I guess people are doing it more and more. They're seeking respite help. They're seeking, um, you know, different kinds of babysitting experience. If you can't afford babysitting, then maybe you, you know, get relatives to pitch in or you, you you know, you contact your local college and try to get students to be, um, you know, you you get creative. um, But you, you find a way because if you take care of your relationship, if you take care, if the couple takes care of the couple and the individuals in the couple manage to squeeze out an hour here or there for themselves as individuals taking care of their own health, I think you do a better job. Yeah, so you have to be a team uh, in some way, and however that team works, and works, right, exactly. you have to figure it out. Yeah, I think the thing, you know, your kids were born in the 90s, uh, and I would hope that there are more resources. I mean, what you mentioned a lot of different places one could go, but even I would assume even support groups of parents who have kids who are autistic and help each other, and I, I don't, I, you know, that, that that also would be an, another resource. Absolutely. For, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm uh, a member of AHANY, which is um, Asperger's and High Functioning Autism New York, and they have all these different, you know, meetings for, you know, uh, the young adults, teenagers, parents, uh, you know, there are conferences. There's all kinds of things going on now so that parents can be, 
connected with professionals and, and connected with each other and learn from each other. And I didn't have that. I was like, you know, pioneer country back when I was doing it. It was just, you know, I didn't even have a computer. I picked up the phone. It was word of mouth. You called someone, you know, you, you asked around. Uh, it's much it's much better now, and there's also much more, along with all the attention and education and effort to try to understand this complex uh, diagnosis, there's um, much more compassion amongst, you know, the neurotypical parents, I think, because they realize that, you know, you don't have a spoiled brat and that if your kid is having a meltdown, it's not because you're a bad parent or the child is a bad parent. It's, it's because, you know, they have a disability and everyone's doing the best they can. And, I mean, I can remember feeling like, uh, you know, I couldn't make friends with other parents because no one wanted to be around my daughter when she had her meltdowns. I mean, it was like, you know, I'd be, be with her and she'd be screaming and, the, you know, the, the, the crowds of parents, it would part like the Red Sea. So it wasn't was easy there to make anybody there... Or, Margaret, was there anybody who you could point to now who really came to your, and I don't necessarily mean a professional, but came to your rescue, so to speak, that you, who would talk to you or feel comfortable or want to hear, you know, want to be with you or be with you and Samantha? Uh, well, <laughs> no, not really. Uh, yeah. I mean, I had a therapist that I felt I could talk to at the time for a while. I did that. I mean, I had some good friends um, when my daughter was in, um, you know, some of the special ed schools, I was able to bond with some of the other parents who were going through a similar situation, um, you know, in terms of their own children being difficult, and we could compare notes, and we could try to organize playdates together, and um, that helped some. There wasn't any one particular uh, person um, that I can think of, although later on, along the way, there were people in given situations that I thought were extremely, you know, that were extremely supportive, you know, when I wanted to get my daughter out of a school where I didn't think she was being um, helped or where I didn't think most families were being treated well, and I would cry every day because I didn't know where to put her, and, you know, one day I decided to apply to this school called Winston Prep, and I didn't think she'd get in, and I was so terrified that I'd have to, that I would have, like, no place to send her, or she'd have to stay in a school that was no good. And, you know, I had this friend who encouraged me and said, she'll get in, don't worry, you know, you'll, you'll persuade them. You're, Samantha's beautiful and wonderful and charming, and, you know, she'll, I know you're going to succeed. And it was really nice to hear that. And I guess I have to say... There was a moment in time when my mother, um, who um, had lost my father when my kids were very, very young, who, you know, went with me when my daughter was at her most difficult, probably, you know, like eight, nine, seven, eight, nine years old. Those, those were very difficult years. Um, and went with me to Washington to get her treatment and always remained optimistic. And when my husband would say, you know, maybe we're wasting our time and our money, you know, maybe this, maybe that, should say, no, 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 you've got to keep going, you've got to keep going. And that was very important to have my mother as, 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 a, as a positive, optimistic force in the face of people with all kinds of negative predictions or else, you know, the classic, we don't know. There were a lot of people who said, you know, which I accepted, 
um, who, you know, my husband being the attorney would always ask all the questions like, do you think she'll ever get married? Do you think she'll go to college? Do you think she'll have a fam- be able to have a family? And either the question, the answers were no, or else we don't know. We can't really tell where she's going to be in, you know, 10 years, 15 years, you know, uh, children develop differently and different kids with this diagnosis may hit, hit a ceiling and some keep going and some keep going in some ways and not in other ways. And it all depends. I still remember um, Dr. Stanley Greenspan, whom you probably may remember, mm-hmm. he always said to us that if um, a child could, be, could become, as a teenager, self-conscious and do what's called gray area thinking and understand you know, differences and maybe understand their own differences, what, you know, that, or, and accept that they had a disability and understand, kind of understand what it was about and how to deal with it, that that was a, boded well for that person as adult, an adult. Hmm. So you, uh, I guess what I think is, would be one of the most difficult things just as a parent in general, you can't get any definitive answers. So day by day, you're working towards goals that you're not sure are going to have any chance of, of being accomplished. Exhausting and vigilant. And, you know, parenting, you always have to be vigilant, but you had to be, it seems, vigilant moment to moment. I mean, for both kids, but I guess particularly with Samantha and, and how really... It, was there any point where you felt like, I, I can't do this anymore? I'm just, I mean, there must have been periods of... Of course. Yeah. Of course there were points like that. Yeah. Um, there were points, um, you know, in my book when my daughter was being asked to leave a school and she was effectively, and even though we legally worked to keep her there another year with a, chat, with a, with a teacher and she did much better with it and she was doing fine, she would have never been asked to leave had she not had the one bad year. Um, but the, instead of like, you know, being kind and saying, all right, we don't want her, we don't want you, we'll write a recommendation that she's improving and, you know, you can get her into another school. They just blacked the, the teachers who wrote nice reports about what she was doing. She actually learned, I won't say she learned to read and, and comprehend, but she was decoding. She was writing in script. This was when she was like eight or nine. And um, no one wrote anything nice about it. They, all they did was write about how terrible she was. And I said, how am I going to get her into a school if, if um, all you say is that she's, you know, all these, ne- she's like a list of negatives. She's not a human being. She's just a list of problems. Who would want her? What school that would be any good would want her? And they were like, well, that's the way we see her. That was a very tough time, uh, very tough. I almost couldn't get her into any school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, um, it was a very tough time. But, um, but you did, you know, and you got through it. And I don't know if we want to necessarily tell the ending to the story or no, not. No, no, but, no, no, of course not. I also, I think the other piece of advice I would give, and I think it holds true even today, um, you know, with all the different autistic spectrum diagnoses and all the, you know, different names you can give to various disabilities, which are not perfectly well understood, I reached a point where I didn't care about the label. You want to call her autistic spectrum, you want to call her PDD, you want to, which is pervasive developmental disorder, and then there was pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified, which I still don't understand, by the way, and I'm like, what, what the heck does that mean? And um, they said, well, it's better than PDD. It means that she's a little higher functioning. We don't exactly, you know, it was along those lines. And I'm like, okay. 
And to me, if you get a diagnosis and it tells you what antibiotics to take, what kind of therapy to take, you know, you need a shot, you need a pill, you should take more vitamins, then a label is helpful. When all it does is just sort of classify you or categorize you in some way and it doesn't really um, offer you therapeutic um, answers, then I, I think it's what you do is, what I, what I did, is I looked at her various symptoms and thought, okay, well, what do I do about, or well, take her challenges, the things that were standing in the way of her becoming, you know, independent and, you know, reasonably well-adjusted. How do I help her do that? Okay, now, so some it's of the behavior. Is, yeah. It's how some she was behaving. depends on your, ch- obviously, the other thing that's starting to come out very belatedly, which should, should be so obvious, is that each child is an individual. I mean, I was fortunate in that, my, both fortunate and it's sometimes unfortunate, um, that my daughter had enormous amounts of energy. And actually, I've noticed that's true of many uh, kids and young adults on the spectrum. Sometimes they talk too loud. They seem like they have enormous energy. Uh, well, the trick is to then try to, you know, channel that energy in ways that are as appropriate as possible. So, um, you know, my childhood came into the world, you know, having difficulty breathing, developed uh, for herself a really strong set of lungs, and then it later turned out she had um, perfect pitch. Um, so we were able to, like, you know, start start working on some of her strengths as well as her weaknesses that she could, you know, she could sing, she could perform, and she liked doing that. Yeah, I think I mean, that's a really, Margaret, uh, Marguerite, I think that's a, such an important point because you really do when, you, when your child gets that kind of a diagnosis, you start focusing on what they can't do and rather than what they can do and like taking, that was you said, well, here are the skills and if you put them in the right place, uh, she can be successful, you know, singing, for instance, as you say. But, you know, I also, and I don't want to leave this out, and we don't have that much time left, just a really couple more minutes. Um, what, Matt, we kind of, and I think this week, you know, if listeners go and you buy the book, you can buy it at Amazon bookstores everywhere. Uh, but well, it's online, it's, Amazon.com. It's not a bookstore. It's online. Oh, okay. Amazon, uh, yeah, online, you can download it. Um, what, a, you know, Matt, in terms of his relationship with Samantha, because, I mean, that was really important, and I think, you know, I, and I think important for parents to uh, get a feel for that, you know, how, how this diagnosis affected her brother and how he felt under constraints or angry or, um, so that's a I whole other... Felt, um, I think he uh, felt, I think at the very beginning he felt... Um, you know, sad because he would try to engage with his sister and play with her and talk to her. And, you know, she didn't, she sort of rebuffed him. It isn't that she rebuffed him. She just didn't know what to do. She was in her own world and he wasn't able to reach her. And that was very frustrating for her. And then as they got a little older and they first went to, you know, either a nursery school or camp together, other children would be mean to her and he'd have to protect her. And then as time went on, he was resentful of the fa- she was resentful of the fact that he would tell her what to do when she would do the wrong thing or be embarrassing or inappropriate, and then she'd yell at him that, you know, only mom and dad could tell her what to do. And then she was ferociously jealous of all the friends. He did well in school. He had lots of friends. He was extraordinarily verbal and um, funny. That was actually one of the things that helped all of us get through. 
was that he has an amazing sense of humor. He's very, very funny. He did stand-up in college. Um, it's part of the movie that he did. He actually made a movie with Nick Reiner and Rob Reiner uh, about rehab, and um, which, I mean, he had some strong reactions to things that happened to her. And um, it's a complicated relationship. Uh, he, they're, they're not super close, but they love each other. They don't have conversations, but they care about each other. They always show up for each other's, uh, you know, concerts, sporting events, whatever, when they were children. I mean, he lives on the West Coast now, but... Um, so it's not the picture-perfect family, which no one's no. family is, <laughs> but I think that's we'll end on that one, and, and, you can, and I want to reiterate, buy the book online. It's My Picture Perfect Family, What Happens When One Twin Has Autism, and I've been talking to mother and author, Marguerite Ellisoffen, and uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, you Thank are you. an amazing parent. And um, great to have you Lots on the show of today. Silver linings, everyone. Yes. Remember that. Yeah. Lots a lot of, of good stuff happens. to be found. Great. Uh, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author Jason Gay. He's author of Little Victories, Perfect Rules for Imperfect Living. 
Um, are you the kind of person who appreciates good advice but can't stand most advice books? Little Victories is for you. A comical journey through family, travel, sickness, heartbreak, and joy. Uh, Jason's debut is a celebration of those smaller, perfect moments that make us happy. Uh, remember, some days you really don't have to do it all. You just need to get your pants on before 2 p.m. So in this collection of 18 essays, yes, 18 essays, Jay, uh, Gay, Jason observes both the practical and ridiculous positive things about living in the modern age. He is a sports columnist at the Wall Street Journal and has written for Vogue, GQ, Rolling Stone, and the New York Observer. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jason. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time and for that very kind introduction. I I hope (laughs) to not let you down completely from here. Well, you won't. It's a great little book, easy read. Uh, You can read it anywhere. So I guess my first question, why did you decide to write the book and why now? Well, I always wanted to write a book. You know, isn't that one of the great American ambitions uh, to, to sit down and actually knock one of these things out? Uh, but what motivated me to write Little Victories was that I was just a failed advice book reader. I was the person who bought every imaginable advice, how-to book, you know, all those books that promised you the perfect life, Catherine, you know, the, the incredible home, the incredible office, the six-pack abdominals, all of those things. And I just failed completely. And I think the reason I failed was that I just could never relate to the voices in these books, these perfect individuals with this perfect advice. It just was unrecognizable to the harried, mistake-laden completely frantic life that I lead, and I wanted to write an advice book that I would benefit from. So Little Victories, as you said, I like to think of it as an advice book for people who can't stand advice books, for rule books. It's a rule book for people who can't really follow rules. And, you know, having a lot of fun with the idea of advice, but also trying to lay out this message that I really do believe in, which is simply to take appreciation from these smaller everyday occurrences, pieces of good fortune, good luck, happenstance that we sometimes just let slide or take for granted in the slipstream of modern life, but we really should not. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, Jason, you, you do it because you're, the book is so much about you. It's so personal. It's not just, as you mentioned, those other books, the how-to, how to, you know, weigh 105 pounds and, you know, <laughs> which... <laughs> Nobody ever achieves, but uh, yeah, it's so it's it's all about your story, and it in each one of these categories that we've described, we can go through them. But um, that's why it's just like oh, as I was reading it, it, was kind of like oh, that's how I feel. That's really me. That's all the stuff that I'm wrestling with in a really <laughs> imperfect way, as you say, imperfect living, right? So, yeah, well, yeah, and that's very uh, kind of you to say, and and, yeah. and you know, honestly, I think the. The best advice I got a long time ago when I was starting to write a column and and certainly in writing the book is be 100% truthful, and that will always be your compass. And if the truth is embarrassing, if the truth is humiliating, um, readers will appreciate it. And, And I certainly come clean about the fact that I've led a very imperfect life, that I've failed a lot of times. Uh, and, and, you know, that this advice should be taken with a grain of salt because of that. But uh, I appreciate the kind words, and, you know, at the very least, I would love people to get a laugh out of it and to take a certain granular perspective from it. 
How do you make that leap, though? Like, it is embarrassing. Could it be embarrassing to you? It can be embarrassing to your family or even your <laughs> kids. So, like, you, do you sit down and say, okay, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway because here it is. I mean, the whole world's going to read it. Or uh, So, yeah. How do, yeah. That's funny. I, I, you know, there are parts of this book, you know, I write about some episodes with regard to health and sickness and some family events and, you know, losing a job along the way. And some of them are really painful details, as well as pretty funny in retrospect. Um, I, I did make the, take the step of allowing my wife and my mother to read it in advance, just in case uh, there were <laughs> things that would cause <laughs> me some problems and- down the road. No one took anything out. I was disappointed. You know, I felt I didn't push the envelope enough, maybe. Uh, Mom was perfectly happy with it, and my wife enjoyed it as well. She says she read it. I'm, I'm suspicious, though, she only got halfway through. Your um, mother or your wife? My, uh, both of them, maybe. Yeah. Um, but they were very, very uh, kind about it. And, again, um, I think there is, you know, when we read any kind of uh, book or um, any kind of article, I think, you know, we get used to sometimes the idea of this, you know, omnipotent narrator, the person who knows all, sees all, never made a mistake in his or her life. Um, I I don't know if that is the kind of uh, connection we need in this day and age. I think that people respond uh, to people who are just painfully honest sometimes about things that happen to them. Um, I, I know the kinds of things that I see people link to on their Facebook pages and Twitter and so on. Um, the things that people tend to share are, you know, things that remind us of ourselves. And, you know, listen, we are all imperfect beings. Even you, Catherine, I know you've made Even a mistake I. or two. You, <laughs> well, my kids would agree with you. But I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, you want to go, and I do this, go online, and now I can go to your book, but that really validates all my imperfections. I don't want a book <laughs> that I'm reading that's going to say, you know, you're not good enough and you have to try and, and, and be good enough and achieve this or that or whatever it is. So, I mean, I think that's what's kind of enticing about your book, too. But oh, let's start with some of the, what was the most difficult thing for you to write about, to share? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, my, my, uh, the, one of the journeys that happened in this book was um, I got deep into it, uh, and, and something very significant happened in, in all of our lives and our family was that my father was diagnosed with cancer and, you know, had a very, very uh, tough battle on his hand and uh, eventually passed away. And the sort of underlying message of Little Victories, which is sort of in appreciation for these smaller things in life. You know, I sort of began this from a humorous perspective, but all of a sudden this thing took on such incredible real-life application. Uh, You know, average, ordinary things that we took for granted all the time, you know, getting down on the phone with his grandkids, making sure to take him for a walk if he felt the energy to go out and go for a walk, Um, taking him for a car ride, you know, sort of talking about sports, anything, uh, things so again that we, we we did thousands, if not uh, many thousands of times, uh, were hugely important. These little victories, uh, and so what I think it did, what I hope it did, was take this book, which really began again from strictly a humor perspective, and and hopefully give it um, this sort of soul, you know, because this real thing happened along the way, and I'm incredibly indebted to my father for everything that he taught me along the way. But, you know, we learned a lot from him up until the end. Yeah. So it's those sweeter moments, those sweet, special moments that just happen to all of us every day, I guess, that we don't even take time to, 
to incorporate into our conscious. We we're always striving for something bigger or better. I think. I think that we act sort of, as if yeah yeah no exactly. We act as if there's always something right around the corner that we're getting to. You know, it's like our lives are constantly in transit, whether we're physically moving ourselves or emotionally. You know, even in the headspace of the digital world, we're going from thing to thing, clicking to clicking. Um, we're always on to the next. And we're not programmed to stop and appreciate things in the way that we should be, I believe, Catherine. I mean, we look at all the things, all the sort of quote-unquote technological progress that we have in our lives right now. And I, I will be completely candid with you that I am as hooked on a cell phone as anybody else. I am on the laptop as much as anybody else. But I do worry about the trade-off that's happening here and the idea of isolating myself from things that are really important. Um, you know, I have small kids now, and they look at, I look at the way that they see the phone that Mommy and Daddy has, and they look at it like it's some sort of godlike object, and that's, that really troubles me. And I've tried to be a better person about shoving that phone in the drawer as soon as I walk in the door. Uh, I'm not 100% on that, but I do believe that um, things that are designed to, quote-unquote, connect us, have an isolating quality to them too, which I, I concern me. Yeah, so they're also a they, instead of connecting, they're a distraction from some of the when you walk through the door. Rather than being with your children, you're distracted by yeah, the telephone. Yeah, not a good thing. It. Yeah, no, I mean, look at we, we you know any environment we're in, you know, whether it's the coffee shop or a restaurant or you know I go to professional sporting events for a living because I'm you know a sports writer. Any sporting event you go to, you look down at the seats. People have paid hundreds, if not thousands of dollars for a sitting courtside of the basketball game. What are they looking at? Not the game. They're looking at their phone, Catherine. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's exactly what I'm talking about here in terms of just not being able to live in and appreciate the moment and constantly thinking there's something else somewhere that we should be looking for when, in fact, there's great beauty all around us. Yeah, enjoy the game. <laughs> exactly. You paid for yeah. it, right? Yeah. All right, so we've talked about family, and uh, and then you have specific things. You know, and there's a lot more in the book about family, too. But, um, but let's talk about some of those things that just happen to us every day. Travel, for instance, because I'm a big traveler. I love to travel, okay. so I was kind of intrigued by that chapter. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, well, uh, yeah, go ahead. Let me ask you, I have a couple questions for you. Yeah, okay. And do you consider yourself a good packer, Catherine? Well, it's interesting you should ask me that question, um, Jason, because I consider myself one of the be- an expert on packing. One of the I, greats. I'm one of the greats. I teach all my friends and relatives and colleagues how to pack. I have a little uh, overnight bag that I take yep. around the world with me, I, whether I'm going away for a weekend or a month. Yeah, and, and that's uh, it. No, you don't do it. any sort of uh, checking. You carry on. Always. And do you roll your clothes, or do you yes. put them in those little vacuum packs, or you're a roller? Okay. I, I'm a roller. My boyfriend is a vacuum packer. and so <laughs> That's a level of obsession I can't quite get to with the vacuum packing. Does he like it? Loves it. Well, he has that person. Okay. We're very different. I, I'm a roller. <laughs> I roll it up. How many things do I need? And worst case scenario, you could always buy it anywhere in the now, world. Now, Catherine, when you get on the airplane... And yep. you have your bag. Now, are you one of those people who's like wrestling it like a crocodile into the overhead compartment or does it slide right in on the first try? 
slides right in on the first try. Unless I'm in well, one of those see, tiny little planes, tiny, tiny little planes, then sometimes it's difficult. Well, I have to ask optimal, you. Optimal traveler. I mean, I yeah. mean, can we all agree on something? There is no experience <laughs> in the human in the human existence right now that is more dispiriting than watching 50 people try to get on an airplane all at the same time. I mean, you yeah. see people who act as if they have never boarded any kind of vessel ever in their entire yep. lives. They don't understand the concept of packing. They don't understand the concept of cubic space, what fits and what doesn't. Um, it really is just such a fraught thing. And if you have to do it, you know, on a semi-regular basis, it can begin maddening, so maddening to the point you never actually want to set foot in an airport or any kind of transit hub ever again. Um, you know, travel is one of those just, again, the average, ordinary, mundane human experiences where this one is so emotional and so fraught and so ridiculous half the time that you really can't find any sort of laugh or enjoyment in it. But it, isn't that a, such a shame? I mean, the actual act of traveling, going somewhere, seeing some part of the country or the world or any place, you know, eventually outer space, it should be such an incredibly stimulating experience. And yet every part of getting there has become so hampered and so constricted that people, you know, it, it's consistently up there on the top 10 of worst life experiences, which is really crazy when you think about it. But we do bring it on ourselves. If you have three, you know, if you have suitcases that you have to wait for that never come off yeah. the, you know, the ramp, whatever it is, uh, or you're trying to stuff your bag, as you say, in the overhead compartment and there's no room, your focus becomes the bag, not the trip, not the person you're with. Totally. And so, yeah. And we do totally. that, I think. Yeah. I, and let's not be uh, uh, negligent here. And we need to mention who are the real culprits, which are the airlines, which... Yeah. Uh, have decided that, you know, a big profit source will be charging us all $25 for every suitcase we own uh, or more um, and making that whole experience so impossible that, you know, it makes people not want to check bags and then bring these ridiculous laundry-sized hockey bags onto uh, airplanes and so on. So so the, the blame really lies at their feet. Um, but I think the one thing that I would like to underline about the airport experience is that there is no such thing. There is no such thing as successful air rage. You know, we've all seen it. We've all seen the person pop off at the ticket counter, pop off on the airplane about, I don't know, they run out of frozen banana snacks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it never works. It never works. It just is a completely mortifying display. If, if, if somehow, if I, believe me, if I thought that curling up on the fetal position on the floor of an airport would somehow get me to Michigan faster when I need to go to Michigan, I would do it, but it never works. All it does is just make people look at you and say like, I'm really glad I'm not that guy right now. One of the things that you say is that, you know, travel is important. It, you know, it's good for our spirit. It's just good in terms of our evolution and how we see the yeah. world and to start young. I mean, and I, I do, and I, that is, I agree with you. I think that's really important um, to, you know, start, tra but start when you travel with your, your kids are young, um, travel to appropriate, do appropriate things. Take, you know, not yes. put your kids in, if you're taking the family, for instance, make sure that you do things according to how the family can handle the travel or the situation. And I think a lot of people don't do that, particularly parents with young kids, but um, well, yes, and, and I'm into the latter category. I have a one-year-old and a 
three-year-old uh, and traveling cross-country with them is like traveling across country with an 800-pound tuna fish on your lap. <laughs> it is incredibly challenging for me, not to mention the poor people sitting around us. We try to be thoughtful of them, Catherine, you know, but you walk onto an airplane with two little kids and people look at you like you're carrying a tub of nuclear waste. They're like, please, please do not sit next to me. What can I possibly do to not be sitting next to this family with two small children? The same thing happens in a restaurant because I have been where you are, three small little yeah. boys under the age of six. No one ever wow. wanted to sit near me. But now I'm <laughs> the old lady in the back who says, don't put those kids. I've been through that. Please do not. <laughs> I'm not understanding. I don't want put me in front of the bathroom, but I don't want to sit next to the one-year-old and the three-year-old. Not always, but we, what we, are we, yeah. My, my wife and I joke that the ultimate family restaurant would be a restaurant that you call in advance to have the food on the table when you walk in with the check already there. Yes. And you prepay so you can walk in, and if the kids are good for two minutes, you just fill them up with food and you walk right out. And there's no it's, – it's the waiting around that really is yes. the bane of the restaurant experience for young people. I think everyone's kids, every parent is capable of making their children behave for between – Four to six minutes, but it's, it's, it's the waiting, especially if they're hungry. That, exactly. that just makes people unravel. And when the waitress says to you, uh, uh, are you ready to order? Or <laughs> we were ready to, as you say, we were ready to order before we walked in here. Um, <laughs> yes, we are ready to order. My mother has a good uh, sort of a solution. She's 90 years old for uh, okay. flying with children, put all the families in the back of the plane <laughs> with all the kids. That is interesting. Okay, so put all the kids in the back of the plane. Now, without the parents, like just like a little playroom in the back? Well, you have to have at least one parent there. Maybe the other one can have it, you know. <laughs> what but, about yeah. a toddler-only airplane, okay? <laughs> just sort of pad it up, fill it with, uh, you know, Legos and, you know, of course, you know, uh, lots of diapers and uh, stuffed animals and all kinds of gear. Um, so maybe Sesame Street videos, and you just fill that thing up with toddlers and send it wherever you need to go. Good idea. <laughs> that's another one. <laughs> so that's I think parents would pay a premium for a toddler-only airline. I think they would, absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, we're just taking, you know, just a few of these topics that you had in the book, but what other ones do you want? We have a, you know, a, let's talk about some of the other um, Sure. I mean, you yeah. know, one, one chapter which is meaningful to me is about yeah. sort of workplace life. And, yeah. you know, I went through an experience a number of years ago where I lost a job. And I write in there about what that experience was like of, you know, being in a workplace where, you know, economic times were tough and people were getting laid off all around me. And I thought I was safe and nothing would happen to me. And all of a sudden, sure enough, someone walks in uh, one morning and says, you know, you got to go. Uh, and how hard that was. And, but what a common experience that is for a great many people and how hard it is to sort of pick yourself up from it and recognize that what you're feeling in the moment, which in my case, you know, I felt great, like personal humiliation. I felt embarrassed. I felt like when I walked out the door, everyone like saw a sign over my head that said this guy just lost his job. Um, it's not true. You know, it's not true. It's, a, it's an incredibly common experience. It's something that uh, reflects less upon you than you think it does. And it actually is, I don't want to say it's easy because it is incredibly challenging in the current environment to go out and find work once again, but it does help you find new parts of yourself. You know, one of the things that I don't know if you've been through this, Catherine, ever before, but like, you know, people will say to you, 
you know what, this is going to be the best thing that's ever happened to you. And you, you, you get so sick of people saying that to you, <laughs> you know, I, if one more person says to me, this is going to be the best thing that ever happens to me. But then, you know, so often it does. The cliches are true. Uh, you discover new things about yourself. You challenge yourself in a different way. You might modify the kind of employee or person you were before. In my instance, you know, I was able to meet and meet up and try new things that I never, never would have had an opportunity ever to do. It was hard to go through. I never would want to go through it again. I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy, but there is a silver lining there. And a big part of it is recognizing the fact that you're not alone. Yeah. But you say the best thing that ever, maybe, would you say it's really the best thing that ever happened to you? I'm kind of relating to, I interview a lot of people who were diagnosed with cancer, and I know you were, you had testicular cancer. And I remember one of the guests said, you know, please don't say to me, that's the best, it will be the best thing that ever happened to you, because you're going to, you know, take a whole new journey that's going to get you in really good places. Um, is that true? I mean, you know, that's a very good question. And, and, uh, you know, I certainly don't mean to, um, you know, describe, uh, a job loss as anywhere near on the part of a serious health issue. Um, though, you know, studies say that they are equally psychologically damaging people. Um, in my specific instance with cancer, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer, which is, uh, though scary, a very survivable cancer in this day and age, thankfully, um, you know, and so my, you know, there was a, the slimmest of slimmest of slimmest of chances that I was not going to survive. The most likely scenario was I was going to make a complete and quick recovery, which I ended up doing. Um, so I don't mean to put myself in the category of someone who went through a very, very difficult health episode, but it does uh, put you in the company of a lot of people who give you advice. Uh, and I didn't, I have to say, you know, I kept waiting for that tremendous life epiphany, like, well, I'm going to drop everything. I'm going to move to Nepal and I'm going to open up a, you know, a restaurant. <laughs> and, you know, that never <laughs> happened. You know, I, 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 I got back to my ordinary life uh, reasonably quickly. And a friend of mine, and I wrote about her in the book, who had gone through cancer and gone through it much more uh, severely than I did, said, you know, there are all these sort of definitions of what is recovery. You know, for cancer patients, it's oftentimes, it's, you know, one year, clean bill of health, five years out, 10 years out, certainly. Uh, but she said, you know, you're recovered when you start caring about the dumb things that you cared about before you were diagnosed. You know, the same ridiculous things that drove you crazy, whether it was the person at Starbucks in front of you who took eight minutes to order a single coffee. Uh once you start caring about that dumb stuff again and you're not just all gloomy about the cosmic issues in your life, that's a version of recovery that's really important. And that always made me laugh. And I think there's some real truth to it. I think there's absolutely real truth to that. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left, but I think one of the other things that you said was, you know, you, have a 90, you had a 96% chance of recovery and 4% chance of not, and then you start focusing on the 4% rather than the 96%. Hey, come yeah. on, 96%, yeah. right? Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's so much of all this in, the, in your book, all this good stuff. So, you know, let's, where can we, I guess a website that we can go to, we can buy the book, I downloaded the book, but you can buy it at bookstores everywhere? Yeah, you can You can get it anywhere you want in terms of bookstores. All national bookstores have it. Those crazy airport bookstores have it. I saw it the other day. Um, you can get it at your online retailer, whether it's Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com or any place that you shop for books online. I'm thrilled to hear you download it. You can do that yeah. as well. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at Jason Gay, J-A-S-O-N-G-A-Y, and on the web at www 
jason-gay.com. Great. Jason Gay, author of Little Victories, Perfect Rules for Imperfect Living. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Great talking to you. Thank you. you, And I hope I'm behind you in line on the airplane because you sound like the perfect traveler. (laughs) Exactly. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to